Chapter Four of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six, Part One. Joan of Naples by Alexander Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Eight days after the funeral of the old queen, Bertrand de Artois came to Joan, distraught, dishevelled, in a state of agitation and confusion impossible to describe. Joan went quickly up to her lover, asking him with a look of fear to explain the cause of his distress. "'I told you, madame,' cried the young baron excitedly, "'you will end by ruining us all, as you will never take any advice from me.' "'For God's sake, Bertrand, speak plainly. What has happened? What advice have I neglected?' "'Madame, your noble husband, André of Hungary, has just been made king of Jerusalem and Sicily.' and acknowledged by the court of Avignon, so henceforth he will be no better than his slave. Count of Artois, you are dreaming. No, madame, I am not dreaming. I have this fact to prove the truth of my words, that the Pope's ambassadors are arrived at Capua with the bull for his coronation, and if they do not enter Castel Nuovo this very evening, the delay is only to give the new king time to make his preparations." The queen bent her head as if a thunderbolt had fallen at her feet. "'When I told you before,' said the count with growing fury, "'that we ought to use force to make a stand against him, "'that we ought to break the yoke of this infamous tyranny "'and get rid of the man before he had the means of hurting you, "'you always drew back in childish fear, with a woman's cowardly hesitation.' Joan turned a tearful look upon her lover. "'God! My God!' she cried, clasping her hands in desperation. "'Am I to hear this forever, this awful cry of death? You too, Bertrand, you too say the word, like Robert of Cabain, like Charles of Duras. Wretched man, why would you raise this bloody spectre between us, to check with icy hand our adulterous kisses? Enough of such crimes. If this wretched ambition makes him long to reign, let him be king. What matters his power to me if he leaves me with your love?' It is not so sure that our love will last much longer. What is this, Bertrand? You rejoice in this merciless torture? I tell you, madame, that the King of Naples has a black flag ready, and on the day of his coronation it will be carried before him. And you believe, said Joan, pale as a corpse in its shroud, you believe that this flag is a threat? Aye, and the threat begins to be put in execution. The queen staggered and leaned against the table to save herself from falling. "'Tell me all,' she cried in a choking voice. "'Fear not to shock me. See, I am not trembling. Oh, Bertrand, I entreat you.' "'The traitors have begun with the man you most esteemed, the wisest counsellor of the crown, the best of magistrates, the noblest-hearted, most rigidly virtuous.' Andrea Vicernia? Madame, he is no more. Joan uttered a cry as though the noble old man had been slain before her eyes. She respected him as a father. Then, sinking back, she remained profoundly silent. How did they kill him? she asked at last, fixing her great eyes in terror on the Count. Yesterday evening, as he left his castle, on the way to his own home, a man suddenly sprang out upon him before the Porto Petruccia. It was one of André's favorites, Conrad of Gotis, 
chosen no doubt because he had a grievance against the incorruptible magistrate on account of some sentence passed against him and the murder would therefore be put down onto motives of private revenge the cowardly wretch gave a sign to two or three companions who surrounded the victim and robbed him of all means of escape the poor old man looked fixedly at his assassin and asked him what he wanted i want you to lose your life at my hands as i lost my case at yours cried the murderer and leaving him no time to answer he ran him through with his sword then the rest fell upon the poor man who did not even try to call for help and his body was riddled with wounds and horribly mutilated and then left bathed in its blood the terrible murmured the queen covering her face it was only their first effort the prescription lists are already full andre must needs have blood to celebrate his ascension to the throne of naples and do you know joan whose name stands first in the doomed list whose cried the queen shuddering from head to foot mine said the count calmly yours cried joan drawing herself up to her full height are you to be killed next oh be careful andre you have pronounced your own death sentence long have i turned aside the dagger pointing to your breast but you put an end to all my patience woe to you prince of hungary the blood which you have spilt shall fall on your own head as she spoke she had lost her pallor her lovely face was fired with revenge her eyes flashed lightning this child of sixteen was terrible to behold she pressed her lover's hand with convulsive tenderness and clung to him as if she would screen him with her own body your anger is awakened too late said he gently and sadly for at this moment joan seemed so lovely that he could reproach her with nothing you do not know that this his mother has left him a talisman preserving him from sword and poison he will die said joan firmly the smile that lighted up her face was so unnatural that the count was dismayed and dropped his eyes the next day the young queen of naples lovelier more smiling than ever sitting carelessly in a graceful attitude beside a window which looked out on the magnificent view of the bay was busy weaving a cord of silk and gold the sun had run nearly two-thirds of his fiery course and was gradually sinking his rays in the clear blue waters where posilippo's head is reflected with its green and flowery crown a warm balmy breeze that had passed over the orange trees of sorrento and amalfi felt deliciously refreshing to the inhabitants of the capital who had succumbed to torpor in the enervating softness of the day the whole town was waking from a long siesta breathing freely after a sleepy interval the molo was covered with a crowd of eager people dressed out in the brightest colors the many cries of a festival joyous songs love ditties sounded from all quarters of the vast amphitheatre which is one of the chief marvels of creation they came to the ears of joan and she listened as she bent over her work absorbed in deep thought suddenly when she seemed most busily occupied the indefinable feeling of someone near at hand and the touch of something on her shoulder made her start she turned as though waked from a dream by contact with a serpent and perceived her husband magnificently dressed carelessly leaning against the back of her chair for a long time past the prince had not come to his wife in this familiar fashion and to the queen the pretense of affection and careless behavior augured ill andre did not appear to notice the look of hatred and terror that had escaped joan in spite of herself and assuming the best expression of gentleness as that his straight hard features could contrive to put on in such circumstances as these he smiled and asked why are you making this pretty cord dear dutiful wife 
to hang you with my lord replied the queen with a smile andre shrugged his shoulders seeing in the threat so incredibly rash nothing more than a pleasantry in rather bad taste but when he saw that joan resumed her work he tried to renew the conversation i admit he said in a perfectly calm voice that my question is quite unnecessary from your eagerness to finish this handsome piece of work i ought to suspect that it is destined for some fine knight of yours whom you propose to send on a dangerous enterprise wearing your colours if so my fair queen i claim to receive my orders from your lips appoint the time and place for the trial and i am sure beforehand of carrying off a prize that i shall dispute with all your adorers that is not so certain said joan if you are as valiant in war as in love and she cast on her husband a look at once seductive and scornful beneath which the young man blushed up to his eyes i hope said andre repressing his feelings i hope soon to give you such proofs of my affection that you will never doubt it again and what makes you fancy that my lord i would tell you if you would listen seriously i am listening well it is a dream i had last night that gives me such confidence in the future a dream you surely ought to explain that i dreamed that there was a grand fete in the town an immense crowd filled the streets like an overflowing torrent and the heavens were ringing with their shouts of joy the gloomy granite facades were hidden by hangings of silk and festoons of flowers the churches were decorated as though for some grand ceremony i was riding side by side with you joan made a haughty movement forgive me madame it was only a dream i was on your right riding a fine white horse magnificently caparisoned and the chief justice of the kingdom carried before me a flag unfolded in sign of honour after riding in triumph through the main thoroughfares of the city we arrived to the sound of trumpets and clarions at the royal church of saint clara where your grandfather and my uncle are buried and there before the high altar the pope's ambassador laid your hand in mine and pronounced a long discourse and then on our two heads in turn placed the crown of jerusalem and sicily after which the nobles and the people shouted in one voice long live the queen and king of naples and i wishing to perpetuate the memory of so glorious a day proceeded to create knights among the most zealous in our court and do you not remember the names of the chosen persons whom you judged worthy of your royal favours assuredly madame bertrand count of artois enough my lord i excuse you from naming the rest i always supposed you were loyal and generous but you give me fresh proof of it by showing favour to men whom i most honour and trust i cannot tell if your wishes are likely soon to be realised but in any case feel sure of my perpetual gratitude joan's voice did not betray the slightest emotion her look had become kind and the sweetest smile was on her lip but in her heart andre's death was from that moment decided upon the prince too much preoccupied with his own projects of vengeance and too confident in his all-powerful talisman and his personal valour had no suspicion that his plans could be anticipated he conversed a long time with his wife in a chatting friendly way trying to spy out her secret and exposing his own by his interrupted phrases and mysterious reserves when he fancied that every cloud of former resentment even the lightest had disappeared from joan's brow he begged her to go with her suite on a magnificent hunting expedition that he was organizing for the twentieth of august 
adding that such a kindness on her part would be for him a sure pledge of their reconciliation and complete forgetfulness of the past joan promised with a charming grace and the prince retired fully satisfied with the interview carrying with him the conviction that he had only to threaten to strike a blow at the queen's favorite to ensure her obedience perhaps even her love but on the eve of the twentieth of august a strange and terrible scene was being enacted in the basement story of one of the lateral towers of castel nuovo charles of durazzo who had never ceased to brood secretly over his infernal plans had been informed by the notary whom he had charged to spy upon the conspirators that on that particular evening they were about to hold a decisive meeting and therefore wrapped in a black cloak he glided into the underground corridor and hid himself behind a pillar there to await the issue of the conference after two dreadful hours of suspense every second marked out by the beating of his heart charles fancied he heard the sound of a door very carefully opened the feeble ray of a lantern in the vault scarcely served to dispel the darkness but a man coming away from the wall approached him walking like a living statue charles gave a slight cough the sign agreed upon the man put out his light and hid away the dagger he had drawn in case of a surprise is it you master nicholas asked the duke in a low voice it is i my lord what is it they have just fixed the prince's death for to-morrow on his way to the hunt did you recognize every conspirator every one though their faces were masked when they gave their vote for death i knew by their voices could you point out to me who they are yes this very minute they are going to pass along the end of this corridor and see here is tamasco pace walking in front of them to light their way indeed a tall spectral figure black from head to foot his face carefully hidden under a velvet mask walked at the end of the corridor lamp in hand and stopped at the first step of a staircase which led to the upper floors the conspirators advanced slowly two by two like a procession of ghosts appeared for one moment in the circle of light made by the torch and again disappeared into the shadow see there are charles and bertrand of artois said the notary there are the counts of Telizzi and catanzaro the grand admiral and grand seneschal godfrey of marsan count of squillace and robert of caban count of eboli the two women talking in a low voice with eager gesticulations are catherine of tarentum empress of constantinople and philippa the catanese the queen's governess and chief lady there is donna cancha chamberwoman and confidant of joan and there is the countess of marconi the notary stopped on beholding a shadow alone its head bowed with arms hanging loosely choking back her sobs beneath a hood of black who is this woman who seems to drag herself so painfully along in their train asked the duke pressing his companion's arm that woman said the notary is the queen ah now i see thought charles breathing freely with the same sort of satisfaction that satan no doubt feels when a long coveted soul falls at length into his power and now my lord continued master nicholas when all had returned once more into silence and darkness if you have bidden me to spy on these conspirators with a view to saving the young prince you are protecting with love and vigilance you must hurry forward for to-morrow maybe it will be too late follow me cried the duke imperiously it is time you should know my real intention and then carry out my orders with scrupulous exactness
With these words, he drew him aside to a place opposite to where the conspirators had just disappeared. The notary mechanically followed through a labyrinth of dark corridors and secret staircases, quite at a loss how to account for the sudden change that had come over his master. Crossing one of the antechambers in the castle, they came upon André, who joyfully accosted them. Grasping the hand of his cousin Durat in his affectionate manner, he asked him in a pressing way that would brook no refusal. "'Will you be of our hunting party tomorrow, Duke?' "'Excuse me, my lord,' said Charles, bowing down to the ground. "'It would be impossible for me to go tomorrow, for my wife is very unwell, but I entreat you to accept the best falcon I have.' And here he cast upon the notary a petrifying glance. The morning of the 20th of August was fine and calm, the irony of nature contrasting cruelly with the fate of mankind. From break of day, masters and valets, pages and knights, princes and courtiers, all were on foot. Cries of joy were heard on every side when the queen arrived on a snow-white horse, at the head of the young and brilliant throng. Joan was perhaps paler than usual, but that might be because she had been obliged to rise very early. André, mounted on one of the most fiery of all the steeds he had tamed, galloped beside his wife, noble and proud, happy in his own powers, his youth, and the thousand gilded hopes that a brilliant future seemed to offer. Never had the court of Naples shown so brave an aspect. Every feeling of distrust and hatred seemed entirely forgotten. Friar Robert himself, suspicious as he was by nature, when he saw the joyous cavalcade go by under his window, looked out with pride, and stroking his beard, laughed at his own seriousness. André's intention was to spend several days hunting between Capua and Aversa, and only to return to Naples when all was in readiness for his coronation. Thus the first day they hunted round about Milito, and went through two or three villages in the land of Labore. Towards evening the court stopped at Aversa, with a view to passing the night there, and since at that period there was no castle in the place worthy of entertaining the queen with her husband and a numerous court, the convent of St. Peter's at Mahela was converted into a royal residence. This convent had been built by Charles II in the year of our Lord, 1309. While the Grand Seneschal was giving orders for supper and the preparation of a room for André and his wife, the prince, who during the whole day had abandoned himself entirely to his favorite amusement, went up on the terrace to enjoy the evening air, accompanied by the good Isolde, his beloved nurse, who loved him more even than his mother and would not leave his side for a moment. Never had the prince appeared so animated and happy. He was in ecstasies over the beauty of the country, the clear air, the scent of the trees around. He besieged his nurse with a thousand queries, never waiting for an answer, and they were indeed long in coming, for poor Isolde was gazing upon him with that appearance of fascination which makes a mother absent-minded when her child is talking. André was eagerly telling her about a terrible boar he had chased that morning across the woods, how it had lain foaming at his feet, and Isolde interrupted him to say he had a grain of dust in his eye. Then André was full of his plans for the future, and Isolde stroked his fair hair, remarking that he must be feeling very tired. Then, heeding nothing but his own joy and excitement, the young prince hurled defiance at destiny, calling by all his gods on dangers to come forward, so that he might have the chance of quelling them. And the poor nurse exclaimed in a flood of tears, "'My child, you love me no longer!' Out of all patience with these constant interruptions, André scolded her kindly enough, and mocked at her childish fears. Then, paying no attention to a sort of melancholy that was coming over him, he bade her tell him old tales of his childhood, and had a long talk about his brother Louis, his absent mother, and tears were in his eyes when he recalled her last farewell. Isolde listened joyfully and answered all he asked. 
but no fell presentiments shook her heart the poor woman loved andre with all the strength of her soul for him she would have given up her life in this world and in the world to come yet she was not his mother when all was ready robert of cabane came to tell the prince that the queen awaited him andre cast one last look at the smiling fields beneath the starry heavens pressed his nurse's hand to his lips and to his heart and followed the grand seneschal slowly and it seemed with some regret but soon the brilliant lights of the room the wine that circulated freely the gay talk the eager recitals of that day's exploits served to disperse the cloud of gloom that had for a moment overspread the countenance of the prince the queen alone leaning on the table with fixed eyes and lips that never moved sat at this strange feast pale and cold as a baleful ghost summoned from the tomb to disturb the joy of the party andre whose brain began to be affected by the draughts of wine from capri and syracuse was annoyed at his wife's look and attributing it to contempt filled a goblet to the brim and presented it to the queen joan visibly trembled her lips moved convulsively but the conspirators drowned in their noisy talk the involuntary groan that escaped her in the midst of a general uproar robert of cabane proposed that they should serve generous supplies of the same wine drunk at the royal table to the hungarian guards who were keeping watch at the approaches to the convent and this liberality evoked frenzied applause the shouting of the soldiers soon gave witness to their gratitude for the unexpected gift and mingled with the hilarious toasts of the banqueters to put the finishing touch to andre's excitement there were cries on every side of long live the queen long live his majesty the king of naples the orgy lasted far into the night the pleasures of the next day were discussed with enthusiasm and bertrand of artois protested in a loud voice that if they were so late now some would not rise early on the morrow andre declared that for his part an hour or two's rest would be enough to get over his fatigue and he eagerly protested that it would be well for others to follow his example the count of tillitzi seemed to express some doubt as to the prince's punctuality andre insisted and challenging all the barons present to see who would be up first he retired with the queen to the room that had been reserved for them where he very soon fell into a deep and heavy sleep about two o'clock in the morning tommaso pace the prince's valet and first usher of the royal apartments knocked at his master's door to rouse him for the chase at the first knock all was silence at the second joan who had not closed her eyes all night moved as if to rouse her husband and warn him of the threatened danger but at the third knock the unfortunate young man suddenly awoke and hearing in the next room sounds of laughter and whispering fancied that they were making a joke of his laziness and jumped out of bed bareheaded in nothing but his shirt his shoes half on and half off he opened the door and at this point we translate literally the account of domenico gravina a historian of much esteem as soon as the prince appeared the conspirators all at once fell upon him to strangle him with their hands believing he could not die by poison or sword because of the charmed ring given him by his poor mother but andre was so strong and active that when he perceived the infamous treason he defended himself with more than human strength and with dreadful cries got free from his murderers his face all bloody his fair hair pulled out in handfuls the unhappy young man tried to gain his own bedroom so as to get some weapon and valiantly resist the assassins but as he reached the door nicholas of milazzo putting his dagger like a bolt into the lock stopped his entrance the prince calling aloud the whole time and imploring the protection of his friends returned to the hall but all the doors were shut and no one held out a helping hand for the queen was silent showing no uneasiness about her husband's death but the nurse isolda terrified by the shouting of her beloved son and lord leapt from her bed and went to the window filling the house with dreadful cries 
The traders, alarmed by the mighty uproar, although the place was lonely and so far from the center of the town that nobody have come to see what the noise was, were on the point of letting their victim go when Bertrand de Vartois, who felt he was more guilty than the others, seized the prince with hellish fury round the waist and after a desperate struggle got him down. Then dragging him by the hair of his head to a balcony which gave upon the garden and pressing one knee upon his chest, cried out to the others, "'Come here, barons! I have what we want to strangle him with!' And round his neck he passed a long cord of silk and gold, while the wretched man struggled all he could. Bertrand quickly drew up the knot, and the others threw the body over the parapet of the balcony, leaving it hanging between earth and sky until death ensued. When the Count of Terlitzi averted his eyes from the horrid spectacle, Robert of Cabane cried out imperiously, "'What are you doing there? The cord is long enough for us all to hold. We want not witnesses. We want accomplices!' As soon as the last convulsive movements of the dying man had ceased, they let the corpse drop the whole height of three stories, and opening the doors of the hall, departed as though nothing had happened. Isolde, when at last she contrived to get a light, rapidly ran to the queen's chamber, and, finding the door shut on the inside, began to call loudly on her André. There was no answer, though the queen was in the room. The poor nurse, distracted, trembling, desperate, ran down all the corridors, knocked at all the cells, and woke the monks one by one, begging them to help her look for the prince. The monks said that they had indeed heard a noise, but thinking it was a quarrel between soldiers, drunken perhaps, or mutinous, they had not thought it their business to interfere. Isolde eagerly entreated. The alarm spread throughout the convent. The monks followed the nurse, who went on before with a torch. She entered the garden, saw something white upon the grass, advanced trembling, gave one piercing cry, and fell backward. The wretched André was lying in his blood, a cord round his neck as though he were a thief, his head crushed in by the height from which he fell. Then two monks went upstairs to the queen's room, and respectfully knocking at the door, asked in sepulchral tones, "'Madame, what would you have us do with your husband's corpse?' And when the queen made no answer, they went down again, slowly to the garden, and kneeling one at the head, the other at the foot of the dead man, they began to recite penitential psalms in a low voice. When they had spent an hour in prayer, two other monks went up in the same way to Joan's chamber, repeating the same question and getting no answer, whereupon they relieved the first two and began themselves to pray. Next a third couple went to the door of this inexorable room, and coming away perturbed by their want of success, perceived that there was a disturbance of people outside the convent, while vengeful cries were heard amongst the indignant crowd. The groups became more and more thronged, threatening voices were raised. A torrent of invaders threatened the royal dwelling, when the queen's guard appeared, lance in readiness, and a litter closely shut, surrounded by the principal barons of the court, passed through the crowd which stood stupidly gazing. Joan, wrapped in a black veil, went back to Castel Nuovo amid her escort, and nobody, say the historians, had the courage to say a word about this terrible deed. End of chapter 4 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia